Hello and welcome to episode 123 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray leading the field away as we detour from the fairway to explore some of the less obvious areas of the course. Today, we're blessed to be in the presence of journalistic royalty in the form of one of the best in the business, Bill Fields. There are writers with higher profile in the industry, but few with equal or better credentials. In a rapidly changing golf media environment, Bill is what might be called a veteran breath of fresh air. Bill will be along in just a moment, but first my fellow travellers on the good, good journey, starting with Adrian Logue. Logue, we're recording early today, now you can thank me later, because you're off on some sort of all-day golf odyssey? What's this about? Uh, yeah, well, Jimmy as well, um, we're joining. Oh, we talked about this in a couple of our previous episodes uh, that with you and Porter. Yeah, they would- do tend to be about you, the episodes. Don't <laughs> <laughs> we're going to play a bunch of nine-hole courses on Sydney's northern beaches. Putting your money where your mouth is. A few of us have never played these courses before. Okay. So. Interesting. And I think it's the end of Ewan Porter's journey to play every ah, the big finale. course in Sydney. Oh, you'll no doubt be yeah. popping a bottle of champers at the end of it. Speaking of Jimmy Emanuel, he's the deputy and digital editor of Golf Australia magazine, I think. And in that lofty position, he's called upon from time to time to explain golf things to the non-golf public. I believe you are on the TV news doing just that last night, Jimmy. Did you mention the pod? I was on the TV and the radio at the same time. Did you mention the pod? No, I did not. Get out. I'd I'd like to consider myself, Bill, I agree, is journalistic royalty. I'd consider myself journalistic pauper (laughs) in the the company of Bill. What's what's, uh, Musk's take on Twitter? A peasants and lords and peasants set up? Is that what he described it as? Something like that? I don't know. Is it going to last? He changes all the time, doesn't he? We might talk about it. Yeah. (laughs) We might talk about all of that. Enough about us. Let's get to our guest. Among a list of credits which could form an episode in its own right, Bill was the recipient of the 2020 PGA Lifetime Achievement Award in journalism, just one of several accolades for his writing. He's a former editor of Golf World and unusually in this business is also a highly regarded photographer whose picture of Larry Mines winning the 1987 Masters was selected as the cover image of Best Sports Stories 1988. I ripped that right out of the PGA Lifetime Achievement Award announcement. Bill Fields, welcome. How are you, my friend? Hey, nice to be with you, fellas, this morning. You're using royalty. That's a lowercase r in my case, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> One of the things that makes you so good is your humility, Bill. All of that stuff that I just read out there about your uh, your sort of resume and where you've been means that if people aren't reading you on a regular basis, they're doing it all right. So that means where can people now read your work? I want to give your Substack a push because we usually leave this stuff to the end and people have tuned out by then. Talk to me a bit about Substack, and then we might talk about how that plugs into the changing nature of media generally, and specifically golf. Yeah, the Substack platform's been around for a couple of years now, and I started uh, back in the spring of uh, 21, I started uh, a newsletter called The Albatross. I thought that name might have some good karma when it comes to golf. Uh, uh, I've never had an albatross. I've never made a hole-in-one, but uh, I thought it was a, a nice name. And, you know, it's... Uh, been a bit of a slow uh, journey. I, I had a little little health issue early in the year, and I was down for a while. But uh, you know, I'm trying to trying to do it more regularly now. And fortunately, I've got some readers in uh, Australia and uh, uh, in in the UK as as well as in America. So uh, you know, I try to mix it up with a little little personal reflections here and there, some current tour coverage and opinion, and uh, some history, which I've always loved. Why don't you just retire, Bill? What's wrong with you? What is this need to keep writing? Not that I want I you to stop. I haven't hit that Powerball victory yet. <laughs> uh, and is that is that really it? I mean, speaking of the changing media landscape, we talk about the technology that's changed golf so much in the last twenty or thirty years. Technology may not have affected any industry more than media in that sense. If you look back just twenty years, what we were doing, Jimmy still writes for a print publication, almost a minority in this day and age, isn't he? Yeah, it's. Um it's crazy how things have changed. I used to work with a an, an, an art director type at uh, the Golf Digest companies, and uh, uh, he recalled being at Time Magazine, which you know, as you know, was a huge uh, a huge uh, staple uh, of, of journalism, especially in this country. And he recalled being in a meeting in the early '90s, and it was uh, it was somebody uh, talking about the coming technology, and the guy mentioned Craigslist, which of course was a is a website over here where people put classified ads and basically when computers came came into being and craigslist came around that basically started decimating the newspapers classified advertising which is where they made a ton of their money and and you know this guy recall being that in that meeting and hearing about craigslist and everybody was just kind of you know downplaying it oh it's not going to have an impact and and of course we know what happened things changed so dramatically who's craig think he is (laughs) (laughs) 
Craig and his list. Well, it's funny, Bill. Some of our uh, older – I don't know. I'd be interested whether you remember this, Jimmy. Some of our older readers in Australia might remember the Trading Post. I used to get the Trading Post delivered newspaper to my house. That you would – exactly. Because I used to like for- buying junk and filling up Dad's yeah, house. Yeah. So I used to get the Trading Post delivered on a Tuesday and I used to read it in the car on the way to school. Made famous by the castle, of course. Correct. <laughs> a set of jousting sticks. What did you want from him? 400. <laughs> Tell him he's dreaming. Tell him he's dreaming. <laughs> Indeed. What's all that done, Bill? Is the written word still carry the weight that it used to? There was something about print, was there not, that you don't get with digital? Um, th- there was a, a there was a, a weight about it, I think, uh, Rod. And there's certainly um, a ton of uh, there's probably more. As Mike Clayton, uh, your, your, your our, our friend, has noted, there's probably more good golf writing out there now than there might have been 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. But it's just it's just fragmented, and it's hard for a piece. Let's say I wrote a historical piece in Golf World 25 years ago. You know, it, if it was a good one, it you know it it resonated. It got a lot of attention. It sort of stood out. Now I can write something what I think is really good on on my newsletter, and it, you know it's it, of course people who who see it like you guys sometimes retweet it or something, but it, it's it's a bit lost in the in the in the fragmented world that we exist in. It's interesting actually on that. When I was at the Women's Amateur Asia Pacific, I was talking to someone about it, and I said, "Oh, it's hard at these events because." You know, it's a great event. To be, people don't read a huge amount of the stories that you pump out each day. And I mentioned that to someone who was there who said, well, take it as another way. You're one of the only ones here writing about it, and that'll stay online forever. Mm-hmm. So you've written the historical piece that lives forever. So the immediate gratification, which you would think you would get from a digital story, is actually maybe more of a long-term thing, which in what I do now with the print side – I think there's far less people who keep every issue of Golf Australia magazine and go back and read things again, apart from yourself. <laughs> Got a bookcase full of them just over here to my right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think, I think that once the magazine is read, it's often gone. People are much more disposable with that, even if it's a beautiful cover and it's got a great you know, collection of BJ's images in there and all that sort of stuff. I think the digital thing has this ability to have a long life sitting there and people come back to it and read it again. If it's a historical work, like Bill says, that's very good or if it's, you know, reflecting on an important event. But um, uh, magazines maybe have that less now. They're even more of a sort of a quick turnaround product. Some, not all. Of yeah, no, no, no. It's hard to know. Bill, the point about all this, Bill, of course, is if you want quality writing and you want quality coverage, you've got to pay for it. That's the hard part, isn't it? We haven't figured out how to pay for it yet in this new digital world. Well, I think, uh, you know, of course, it started with newspapers first and they, they kind of didn't, you know, it sort of goes back to that, not, not realizing the threat necessarily at first. And they let the, they let the, the cow out of the barn and then, okay, how do we, if people are used to getting it free, I, you know, when people say, Hey, I get my news on the internet. Well, they're getting it from somewhere and somebody's paying to produce that news. So it's, it's, you know, there are a lot more paywalls now and people, you see tweets, people are angry when something is behind a paywall. Obviously, everybody can't subscribe to everything, but um, I, I don't know what the answer is. You know, a lot of big publications in this country have done well digitally, New York Times and Washington Post. Yet there is increasingly what people think is a, a news desert in many small towns and cities. Um the town I grew up in is an exception. Southern Pines, Pinehurst, North Carolina. They have a great uh, community newspaper. It wins tons of awards every year. It does its function. But sadly, so many countries with the with newspapers being bought up by big private equity firms and hedge funds, um, these newspapers are getting decimated, if not uh, totally, uh, uh, you know, obliterated. And it's a scary thing because forget about sports that give people enjoyment. These these outlets aren't covering local government. They're not a watchdog, uh, an important watchdog feature that that keeps uh, bad stuff from happening or reporting when bad stuff does happen. Yeah, just a tip for those out there who might be on Twitter. If you're interested in this stuff, follow Jeremy Jeremy Litor. He's a, a media, a professor of media studies at a university in, I'm going to say maybe Ohio, does some really interesting stuff about the business model and how the business model changed and is changing in media. Like, what's the answer? <laughs> uh, no, but oh, who knows? Look, it, advertising is how the internet runs. So, is it? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> still? <laughs> yes. Yeah, is absolutely. It still gonna, is Very it still, much. Is so. it still going to be the way? 
the way forward? It's the only answer we've got at the moment. Um, I, I think there's more sophisticated, uh, integrated cells that are going on, which are a little bit more, you know, uh, there's, there's a little bit more engagement than just shoving banner ads in front of people. It's very um, unsophisticated, that isn't it, but you would expect that to change. That's right, and and probably extremely ineffective. Yes. But, um, you know, but is that what brand – some brands are just looking for that. Some brands are just looking to, you know, just – there's different sorts of advertising, isn't there? McDonald's advertising is very different to the local pool shop in the local paper advertising. They're two different That's strategies right. achieving two different things. A lot of them are just trying to establish their brand, brand and, awareness. and they just want to get it out there mm. and engagement doesn't matter so much. What about paying bill $5? I think it's $5 US a month for your Substack bill. You can get it uh, free. Five but a month yeah. or 48 a year, yeah. yeah. Or you can choose to get it free if you're a tight ass, but <laughs> is that – but? Is that model going to be effective in the long term? Like, will it be more like I've sort of laid out in the past, where I think that the the the, new, the the sensible news part of media will be more about more like a cafe business. You'll have lots and lots of little operators, like us. We could be an example, a little corner of the internet. We can make enough for us to kind of survive and have a proper job mm-hmm. covering the game, producing the media. Then you'll have a couple of Starbucks and yeah. Gloria Jeans and they'll be the Murdochs and that, and they'll have a, a bigger operation. But is that a feasible thing? And Because that's kind of what Bill – Bill's a cafe, isn't he? He's a, yeah. he's a one-man I mean, cafe. That's the cycle that things follow. Um, I, yeah. I forget who, is it, who it was who said, but there's only two business models, bundling and unbundling. Do you know who I think it was? I hate to say it. <laughs> Gillis. <laughs> he's the one who introduced me to the idea <laughs> of bundling and unbundling. Yes, I think he came from the developers of Netscape, the browser that you would remember from – Back in the nineties, I think they were the ones who came up with the notion. Henry's and Horowitz, those guys. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I I don't think I'm even a cafe right now. I'm I'm more like a a food truck. I (laughs) mean, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm trying to build up to having a brick and mortar. Um, But yeah, I think the Substack platform and and others like it have been quite successful for uh, people that already have a you know prominent name, and then they can just start something and really you know tread off their uh their already uh notoriety you know our friend jeff shackelford i think has a very nice uh following on his Substack, the quadrilateral jeff had you know worked for years with his website uh, as a blogger uh you know i'm uh you know i'm not anywhere near where i want to be and hopefully will build up my subscriber base uh hopefully within the next year or two but a lot of people are doing very nicely on Substack. Mm. I wonder, Bill, who, who's the who's the target market? As you say, you can get anything you want for free on the internet. Are people starting to learn that that's not necessarily what you're getting is necessarily good? Are we yet at the point where people are willing to pay? I guess in numbers. Your um, and I think in some case, you know, it depends on the product. I guess you know, people that people will pay for business information, stock tips, what you know, things like that. They they see a. It, you know, they, for leisure stuff that they just enjoy, I think they really have to like the writer a lot. And, uh, you know, I've got, you know, uh, some a small group of people in, in the golf world that do appreciate what I do, but I'm, I'm clearly not at a, at a place where, you know, that's, you know, widespread people want to shell out, you know, $5 a month. And I, I, I'm, and I'm trying to build that up, but, you know, how, how great that can be, I don't know. Mm. Come on, good, good listeners, get behind Bill. It seems, well, it seems like, Substack is the written form of podcasts in a way. Like you can, yeah, listeners or readers in Substack's case identify themselves by subscribing, and uh, some proportion of them might pay for premium content. Um, And it's the success is how do you measure success in that case? It's it's about the person who's creating it, isn't it? What do they think? I think it's about finding your people. Yeah, and we found both of ours. <laughs> that's right, <laughs> and that's what the internet's very good at. Generally, is these niche markets. Mm. And but of course, we think about the internet as big, don't we? Oh, I'll have a show, and I'll be Joe Rogan, yeah. massive audience. But that's attaching an old model to what is a new delivery system. That's right, and the content suffers as a result of that because it has to be so broadly appealing. So you know, Bill's free to actually write about what he wants to write about, and there's gonna be some people on the internet if you. If you cast that wide enough, there's gonna you're gonna find your people. Mm. I think one that's of the a hard- great perspective, Adrian. I mean, I think you make a lot of good points there. Really, it's unusual for you. So <laughs> yeah, that's good of you to bring it today, <laughs> yeah. Jimmy. But it, I think it's hard. Uh, like Bill has a profile. You know, I've known who Bill is for a long time. So Bill sets up a Substack with a charge. You go, 
I know what Bill Fields is. I know what he writes and, and I'm willing to pay for yep. it. If someone else is trying to develop that and they have to give it away first to then charge is where you get so many people getting upset about, well, it used to be free. You know, I don't want to pay for it now. Mm. So, there's this sort of un, you know, unnatural sort of a level at the moment where someone can't quite make the jump from developing their following into a paid following if they're not already there. But I think that will come over time as people get more used to it um, because you, you have to pay for good stuff. I mean, yeah. Jamie Corrigan writes most of – he gets ahead of most of the news with Liv. Mm-hmm. Jamie's obviously got some good sources there where he gets some good stuff and his stuff for the Telegraph is behind a paywall. Yeah. So, it's understandable. I mean, the guy's working very hard. So, that's good journalism and it deserves money to be coming in for it. So, it's hard to argue against that being behind a paywall for anyone, even if they weren't a journalist. Mm. I'm really interested in this equation of like how much effort it goes into creating the content versus how much effort goes into consuming it. Mm. And I, I somehow don't value very highly the stuff that's published to websites um, where I'll look at it and I'll scan Thanks. it. <laughs> 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 Some websites. Uh, but when when a Substack email from Bill arrives in my inbox, I actually make a point to read the whole thing because I know I asked for that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'll actually go and read the whole thing. I read a, a few, actually. I read Shackleford's one. I read, but I read some others, like this writer I like, Sarah Miller. And I, every time her thing arrives in my inbox, I read the whole thing. And I don't, I don't care what topic it's about, maybe something I've got no interest in. I know that the writing's going to be good, and I read it. I make a point of reading it. And the investment of time that she's put into creating that newsletter and what Bill puts into creating Albatross, I think, is matched a little bit more by me reading the whole thing and consuming it. Where it's in, the further you get, we've talked about this before, but the closer you get to podcasting, where the equation is almost approaching one to one, apart from all the time Rod puts into the podcast, um, <laughs> we, 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 put, we put an hour or so into the podcast. The consumer puts you know, an hour or so into listening to it. And this is really fair exchange. Whereas the, the, further, the closer you get to that mass media that we talked about, the, the less fair the exchange is. And so That's as I'll, much about writing as anything. Writing takes a long time. But I wonder how that yeah. translates into um, how writers and content creators are rewarded. Like the, the better that equation is, or the more fair that equation is, the better rewarded the, uh, the writer or the content creator is. Interesting, because, uh, you know, I, I just posted a, a piece a little while ago, and, uh, you know, it's something I've been noodling over for a couple of weeks, not every day, but I, it's something that required some some uh, historical research. And I sort of put it in the context, context of uh, an experience I had recently. So I, I tried to do that a lot, where I kind of try to mix, you know, mix a little bit of the present with the past. And, I, you know, I think not not saying no one else is doing that, but it's something I think I do pretty well, and hopefully... You know, but whether that draws a wide uh, group of people that are interested, you know, it's, you know I don't know. Uh, so just while we're on the subject, Jared Dorther is one of people, the perfect part. Uh, it's a business newsletter, golf business newsletter, which is really good. Um, he's oh, doing some really good You'll have to give me stuff. a link that I can put in. I will get you a link for the show. In fact, we've tried to get Jared on the podcast a couple of times. It's just been awkward getting the timing right. Bill, it, it raises two questions for me. One, Jimmy talked about those with a profile. Obviously, got the head start in this kind of newer age, which is true. So that leads directly to, uh, if you don't have the profile, how do you get it, which kind of bakes into the same question, where is the next generation of journos coming from? You and I did fairly, I think, standard media backgrounds, cadetships out of paper, that kind of thing, interning, whatever you might want to call it, where you were surrounded by older, more experienced journos and you learned as much by absorbing what was going on as any kind of textbook learning. How does that happen in this environment? Not just in golf, obviously, which is actually we've seen how important that can be with the live thing, and we'll talk about that soon and the way that's been covered. But where does the next generation of not necessarily in a high-profile journalist, but just good old-fashioned reporters who are really important, just reporting the day-to-day happenings of the world. Yeah, I mean, it, there's still obviously uh, opportunity for people that want to become journalists, whether in the news realm or in sports. But I think you, I think you have to accept that uh, you know life. Uh, even if you're good and you're working your way up, life may, unless you've got some family money, life may be a little tough for a while because, you know, I just look back on, on my career. When I got out of college, 
1981, you know, I had a couple of jobs in the early 80s uh, at, at small to medium-sized newspapers, you know, and I was making around, you know, $14,000, $15,000 U.S. a year. And and I, I lived, no, I didn't live lavishly, but I could pay my bills with no problem because things were not as expensive back then. You know, my car payment was $130 a month. I could get an apartment for $225 a month. So the, the equation now for people getting into the business, you know, you, you, they might only be making, uh, twice, uh, at an entry level job what I was making, you know, 40 years ago, yet they're having to pay five, six, seven times as much to find a place to live. So, I mean, it's a, it's a tougher equation from that standpoint. Can't, can't even pay their bills like a, Big shot. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine how many Substacks you could have subscribed to, Bill, in that day. <laughs> That's right. Uh, they, would, they would have been a quarter, 25 cents a month, right? I think, uh, I mean, part of the profile stuff that we talked about jokingly, but talking about the TV and stuff I did yesterday, I don't get paid to do that stuff. No, but it's important for your brand, is it not? Well, Which is actually a reality in the modern media it, era. It's important it is, for yeah. it's important for Golf Australia's brand. It's important for my brand as well that you get these opportunities and you take them and you go and do them. And it it helps, I think, uh, educate a wider audience about what's going on as well, which then can lead to more people who want golf content because we're in an extremely interesting news time period for golf. So you drag more people in to read stuff, which I think is good. So that's a reason to do it, but. Those are the sort of things you have to do. Just, you know, be willing to jump on or go to a studio or whatever and, and talk about these things and, you know, hope they say your name right and spell it right that you might get some benefit out of it. But, um, you know, it has to be a willingness to do those sort of things. Whereas you know, I've spoken to a lot of people who used to do regular radio spots and all that sort of stuff and refused to do it unless they were getting a couple hundred bucks here and there. I mean, if you ask for that, they'll find someone else. So you, you, you've got to do that that groundwork yourself and spend the time to build up any sort of a profile to get some attention, I think. Mm, yeah. it's, uh, you know, Rod, you mentioned young people getting into the business. I know in golf, in the golf scene, there are some some younger people out there doing uh, great, great work. There's a, a writer at, at golf.com, Dylan DeCheer. He's he's a very talented uh, guy. And, uh, you know, he's I don't think he's 30. You know, he's a young he's a young young man. And uh, just cite him as one example. There, there are definitely, there are definitely younger people out there. Um, you know, as an older person, I'd like to think that you know people value all of us, the young and the old. You know, there there is ageism in, in the business as well as is uh, unfortunately you have to acknowledge it. Um, and I think that maybe older people forty years ago were maybe a little more valued than we are now, um, or you know, just from personal experience. Mm-hmm. The generational shift in the delivery method, i.e. the internet versus print, we had a good couple of generations where print was where journos learned to be journos, and then they went off to radio and TV, didn't they, Bill? You would have worked with numerous people who started in the newsroom, learnt the craft, then they went to television, radio, magazines, and those other places. This beast, the internet, is a completely different thing. You build a career totally differently uh, uh, on the internet, and it has certain impacts. Most of those younger people, Jimmy or we see a real um, explosion of this, it's not built around that reporting idea. Here's a car accident. What happened? Who? What's the who, what, when, where, how, why? It's about hot takes. And often the person doing the coverage is somewhere in the story themselves. Now, as an older journal, I find that a bit annoying. I might be wrong about that. There's a personal taste about that. But is that the healthy way forward for coverage, not opinions, but coverage of the game and things more broadly? Oh, I mean, I think personally, I think still writing a good game story is one of the most fun things you can do. But you get such few opportunities to do that, to have it with any impact, because most people are going to watch the golf that they're reading about anyway. Um, like Sandbelt Invitational, Jeff and Clates' event is one of my favourites because it's not on TV. No TV coverage. Yeah. So I go and I interview who I want. I put together a game story where it's all about what has just happened and give it some colour and do all that sort of stuff. And people will read it and actually pay attention to what's happened in those you know 600 to 1,000 words. Um, and I think that's really good for you too. I think that's a, that's how you learn how to do it. That's how I learned how to do it. I came from no no educational journalism background. I came from golf and I was sent out to go 
tag around with yourself and follow Huggy around and follow Clates and, and just learn. And I think I learned more writing game stories that then I now have a valid opinion to be able to write opinion pieces and having been around golf my whole life. But you're right. I, I think people come out and their first thing is to write a hot take because that's what gets clicked. That's clicks. That's what gets engagement. It's kind of what they think the business is. That reporting Correct. that Jimmy's talking about, Bill, is that not like the foundations for the house? You've got to build the foundation, which is learning how to be a reporter, the very basic stuff, before you can think about building the fancy house on top, which is the more thought-out opinion pieces and hot takes. Well, you'd like to think so, but uh, in today's reality, it's a lot, as you alluded to, it's easier for someone to just bang out an opinion without – they, and they might not have the financial resources to go to a event and uh, be there on the ground. And, uh, you know, that's just the reality. I know, I know myself, I write more now that, you know, at a, I write more from not being in an event than I used to when I was employed as a staff person, you know, that was paying me to go to an event and be there. It's, uh, you know, I was at um, uh, Sandrews this year working for NBC in my role as a researcher. So I, I decided, you know, uh, three or four days after the tournament was over, I published a, a 4,500 word, uh, game story on, on my, uh, in my newsletter. And, you know, I don't know how many people ap- appreciated it, but I, it was just something I wanted to do. Uh, now that, that's really old school, but I think, you know, I think it was well crafted. And I think for those that did, uh, that do, are interested in that type of thing, that they did enjoy it. But, is that for everybody uh, in these days? Absolutely not. I'll tell you when I'll enjoy that, Bill, is next year. Jimmy, it sorry, was, when you can go back and, and read it. It was exceptionally well-crafted. I read that. that was brilliant. But I think um, Bill's spot on about covering events. I think so many of the people who come into the golf writing or golf reporting game now don't actually ever go and cover many events. You know, And that is so important as to – to getting a gauge of of how to do the job and and try and do different jobs reporting on golf a little bit you know if you're a newswire job for a couple of days or writing the longer game story or writing whatever you learn so much more but the the it's expensive to go and cover events so from like a publication like our point of view I go to more events than most most it costs us money it, it, it's expensive for us and and the return is financially not significant not obvious problem. What? No, but it's 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 worthwhile for experience and also for quality of story mm-hmm. and and connections with players and officials and everything like that. But so few people do that, and you know it was very obvious. Huggy and myself being at the Asia Pacific Amateur, the, the men's version in, in Thailand a couple of weeks ago, and and Huggy and I sat there each morning and sort of went through the field and basically said to each other, "What story are you going to write today?" What what little country are you going to pick out? What are you going to do? And, like, that's something that I only know to do from being around events and doing all that sort of stuff. A new person going in there, if we sent a junior reporter for us, the first thing would be, oh, I'll just go and watch the leader and go and do that. But you get so much deeper stories, so much more interesting stories. But I only know that from going to events and sitting with Huggy before and, and you know, battering through the tough exterior. Concluding yeah. <laughs> with Huggy is one of life's great joys, it, yes. It's not just that. No. I think it makes you very hard to compete with when you're attending tournaments and and doing that stuff because, like, you've got your hot take merchants. They're really just shouting into the ether. And for one or two extremely high-profile uh, organisations that have built their reputation on hot takes – there's hundreds of thousands of people who are trying to emulate that and not succeeding at all. And they're extremely uncompetitive. Like, they're just not- In fairness, it is a talent to do it well, isn't it? Those who are good at it. it there can be some very talented <laughs> ones exactly that just right. do not get noticed as yeah. well, like where they're just shouting into the into the ether. And uh, if, I think as if you're trying to establish a brand that way, you're battling a headwind all the way. Whereas the way you make yourself difficult to compete with is with- uh, some personal leverage, like yeah. special relationships or um, skills or multiple fields, having skills in multiple fields, like Bill with his photography and writing is a double threat. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> double threat, I love it. Um, I think one uh, one aspect that's <clears throat> sometimes overlooked in the in the in the in the in the way that if if people never are on site and they're never actually where a golfer that they might heavily criticize. Is at I think that I know in the in in over my career, 
I, I remember specifically writing a Golf World cover story in a, in a PGA Championship preview in 1998. And Phil Mickelson had been on the tour for a handful of years. He'd won tournaments, but he had not won a major yet. And he would not win a major for a, a number of years after that. Jesus. But the cover, the, the the focus of my long feature was, does Phil Mickelson have what it takes to win a major championship? Uh, he had won the U.S. Amateur. I'm talking about a professional major. And so it was, it was a, it was a fair story, but it, you know, I talked to a bunch of people, you know, critiquing what, what was Phil lacking? Uh, what was the reason he had not won a major to that point? But, when that story came out, you know, and golf world was still a, you know, a big deal in the game at that point, you know, when that story came out, I, I was at that PGA and I made sure I was at, uh, a, you know, at, at Phil's scrum when he finished the first round, just so, you know, I, I was accountable. If he wanted to say something to me, I was there, mm. but a, a lot of people just writing from their den now, their home office, they're never out there and, and around a player that they might be criticizing. And I think that that gives them a, uh, sort of a, a you know an, an unearned freedom you know and uh it's a different it's a different atmosphere it's a different uh vibe did he did he take a shot at your bill because there's been six in your faces since then hasn't there <laughs> uh no he said hey very fair story he was you know he he acknowledged you know the story was not a hot take if you will it was a fair critique of, of where he was at that point in his career but you know, I still had to stand. I had to be there, and and you know, if he wanted to challenge me, you know, I was going to stand up as a, you know, and and take it, you know. But uh, uh, I think some people, I think I think golfers or any any public figure, they don't like it when somebody just takes a shot at them without uh, being accountable. Yeah. yeah, it's part of the gig, isn't it? Being a public figure is yeah. that sometimes people are going to say things you don't like. We've done what media and journal, journal media people and journals always seem to do, Bill. We've made this all about us. What about the reader and the consumers of media? Why is any of this stuff important to them? <clears throat> well, I mean, we uh, we we don't we don't have gigs or jobs with, without them, right? And uh, I think I think a lot of people a lot of people making a lot of money have put uh, time into figuring out what people want. Uh, sometimes to, successfully, some sometimes not. You know, in, in the last years that I was at Golf World, uh, Golf World print edition was killed off in 2014. And, you know, in the in the several years uh, prior to that demise, there were people that were within the company, uh, none of my immediate colleagues, but there were people in, within the company that would say, hey, we got to, you know, you got to write shorter stories. Nobody wants a long story. Well, I never in my quarter century almost at the magazine, I never heard anyone tell me that, hey, your Golf World stories are too long. If people enjoy a subject, they want to be engrossed in it. They want to uh, savor it. So, you know, there, there's sometimes uh, erroneous views on what people want. They really don't want that. They just people people buy into a cliche or a prevailing attitude about the business when it really might not be true. Hmm. The term that I've heard that offended me more than any in the last 10 years was snackable content. <laughs> You oh, say it was such domain. What a demeaning way to describe what people do, professional people do. It's snackable content. Produce me some snackable content. Yeah. It's You're just, looking at me with, when you, you say, were there. Who, who asked the, you to produce some snackable content? You're doing lots of air quotes need around a, it as well. Uh, no need to go into that. <laughs> so. I can guess. Well, I just produced 1,600 words today, so that's a light lunch, I think. <laughs> And the open piece is a couple of courses to be saved with a wine. On the 4,500 words that you wrote on the open, which I haven't read yet, deliberately, because I will save it to me. Well, shame on you. Well, yeah, no, shame. Not, yeah. not, what not the hell? because I'll tell you why. The time to read that is not this year when it's just happened and it's all fresh in your mind. Yeah, true. It's next year when you've forgotten all those little details, which is the whole point. To be fair, you could just read it those. again then. I could. Yeah. Or I could just read it the first time. The point being, I discovered in a holiday house we rented many, many, many years ago a book of the writings, game stories of the likes of Herbert Warren Wind. Mm -hmm. And it was the most fascinating five days of just sitting down. Those things were six, seven, eight thousand words. You were there day by day. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant coverage of the game. And it's a shame that we don't get that uh, more broadly uh, than. Um, these in this sort of day and age. We mentioned the magic word live a couple of times. Jimmy, two things. Firstly, they've announced their Australian tournament in Adelaide in April next year. Season passes have sold out. Is that right? According to Twitter, yeah. And is that a surprise? Uh, no, not necessarily. 
Um, look, it's got. I've said this a bunch of times over the last couple of days. It's got. It's live has more support in Australia than probably most places in the world. So outside America, I think is that probably true. Australia being the same as the UK, it's got support broadly out, more broadly, I think outside America. Oh, I think outside of America, it's got more support. But I think in Australia, you'd be surprised just how big it is. Now it's not complete. You know the no, no. the South Australian Premier's announcement on Twitter was met with the equal amounts of "How dare you?" and whatever. With this is great, but so many people have have been waiting for something like this to happen here. Um, and you've got to think, you know, South Australians, just the locals there, will have never had the chance to watch Cam Smith play a professional tournament otherwise. Mm-hmm. So he's at, you know, close to the peak of his powers and they think, oh, I get a chance to see him. I get a chance to see Phil Mickelson for the first time ever. Um, Brooks Kepp has never played an individual event in Australia. You know, Dustin Johnson's only played here a couple of times. So they're going to latch onto it. There's all the people who are talking about going from interstate and all that sort of stuff. So they want to get their tickets early. Whether they all use them is another question. I, I, you know, Australians are good at – because when something comes here, it's so big. Australians are good at pre-buying. You look at music festivals or, or concerts and it's 12 months away and everyone buys their ticket and then goes, well, I don't actually – like the, the tickets for the live, the season pass wasn't that expensive. So it's – for a lot of golf fans, it's not that expensive, I should say. So I think they've gone, well, I'm in and I'll buy it and then they'll – actually assess it as it gets closer. I mean, Adelaide's an expensive place to go to. I got friends going to a wedding there this weekend and someone left their flights a little late and it's a thousand bucks one way to get there from Sydney. Wow. So a thousand bucks to not be able to come home. Yeah, like it's it's not <laughs> it's not a cheap place to go. Beautiful um, place, by the way. Beautiful place. I got I got a lot of family. I, yeah. I used to spend Christmases there and I, I love it. But mm. it's um look it's not a surprise. It's got this support behind it. Whether or not, you know, Maybe tour groups have bought up some of those tickets right. to take yeah. you know, tour groups in Australia are a big thing for golf. So I'd imagine there's some of that, and there it probably wasn't a full release of tickets. Let's be honest. I mean, you don't you don't sell out on the first day if you sell every single ticket. Back to something you said there. Why haven't the people of Adelaide gotten to see Cam Smith? They deserve to, but why haven't they? Uh, <laughs> uh, I think you'd have to ask some people in charge of bigger organisations than me. But Look, I guess the point I'm making is it's a, it's a business reality, is it not? Correct. That taking a golf professional golf tournament to Adelaide is not a winning business model. No. Well, I mean, this is part of the issue here is that uh, trying to explain it to non-golf people over the last couple of days and, you know, why there? Well, Liv sent out their scouts and they went to New South Wales, they went to Queensland, they went to Victoria and they discussed with these golf clubs in those areas, you know, could we come here? Um, and they said, why South Australia? And I had a guy on, on, on radio last night say to me, oh, we looked up the Grange on your course rankings and, you know, the Grange East isn't even in the top 35 courses in the country. I said, well, number one, good golf courses don't always have the tournaments and it is a good golf course, but they have to find a place that's willing to have them. Now, Adelaide and the South Australian government, who would be, I imagine, paying some money to bring the event there, must have a very different view of it to how I see it because I can't see it as being a huge tourism driver for people watching from outside Australia because any American that I speak to, and I spend a bit of time there, I've got family there, Europeans as well who talk about coming to Australia to play golf, they're going to Melbourne. And if they're not going to Melbourne, they're going to Tasmania. And they maybe have seen New South Wales golf club, so they might come to Sydney. Very, very rarely are they targeting South Australia as their first point that they want to go to so they should be but not maybe not they should first, maybe not first point but, but they're missing out they should, I mean, there's, some, golf point of there's some beautiful golf there there's some beautiful food there wine there and, and countryside but i don't think that the kind of people who are going to watch live golf adelaide are necessarily going to turn around and book a trip to south australia mm-hmm. so the the business side of that they there'd be reasons they'd want it i mean it, it's surely the south australian government you know, a little bit because they're not going to have the Women's Australian Open as well. I Which think. was a huge success, by the way. In, exactly. The and right tournament. In and the, the following week after Live, I'm sure it's the week after, not the week before, they're going to have AFL's first magic round where all the teams play in South Australia, like what the NRL, the Rugby League does. So they're clearly trying to turn it into a thing. You know, they used to have a, an F1 Grand Prix down there. So I think it still holds the record as the biggest ever F1 crowd. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's a city that turns out and people like to go there, but the business side of it is why they haven't had those events. But 
maybe live signs sort of signals a change to that. But look, it it feels like it's they needed a venue. South Australian government wanted an event. It kind of all came together. There's the Greg connection with the Grange winning the Westlakes Classic in 76. There's all that sort of stuff. It's It'll work. I mean, I'm sure they would have really liked to go to Queensland with Cam Smith coming back, but he's already going to play there a month to four months before that. Victoria clearly didn't want him. You know, Sydney, well, you know, it, it, Sydney doesn't hasn't gotten behind the Australian Opens in the biggest way than when it was having it here. It's not such a sporting city as I like Melbourne no. in some ways. Adelaide. I guess the point I was trying to make there, Bill, about the business case, I want to get your take on Liv. I don't, I haven't read a lot of your stuff on Liv. Your take on Liv. The criticism of it being, for the most part, it's not a legitimate business model. And this Adelaide tournament feels like an example of that. It's Nobody else has been able to stage a professional golf tournament successfully in Adelaide for all sorts of commercial reasons. Live have this, not bottomless, but extensive pit of money to call on where those realities don't affect them so much. What's your take on Live, and what what's your long-term thinking about where the professional golfscape might end up? Well, it, I was on a, a radio show yesterday and uh, – I made I made the point that I sense that there's more support for live events outside the United States and um possibly uh for some of the things that Jimmy just touched on is you know there's there's not a lot of events or any events with the best players in the world um you know in some places around the globe um we're pretty spoiled here in America and I think I think that will make um Despite the the negatives that that come come with the the Saudi Arabia financing, I think that will make it more uh, amenable to some places outside the U.S. It, there's an attitude, there's an attitude almost as much of stick it to the PGA Tour as support live. Is there not like the PGA Tour has not kind of done a good job of endearing itself to almost anybody? It seems, including to my surprise, in many ways. Many of the top players have been quite staggered by the number of them who seem to hate the tour and couldn't wait to leave and go somewhere else. Yeah. Well, it's the obvious point in Australia that, or the obvious pain point in Australia is that we once had a thriving circuit Mm -hmm. where our best players would come back every year and uh, a handful of the best in the world would come back every year or come over here every year. And, And that's what created this great heritage in tournaments like the Australian Open. Uh, and we don't, we just don't simply have that anymore. Uh, and uh, is it fair the PGA Tour gets blamed? For that? No they sh- certainly played a part in that, but well, they're just in looking after their own interests. Um, but aren't, aren't we? Where it becomes disingenuous is where they say they're also doing stuff for the good of golf, because the majority of the time they're just looking after their own interests, and that involves filling almost every week in the calendar, which is what ultimately has led to this situation mm-hmm. where other circuits can't can't thrive um yeah it's things are changing though we've seen the last few years with the tps events i think have really ignited a little bit of interest in local golf local professional golf here and now we had i think every professional every sort of top tier professional event in australia this year is being covered Mm -hmm. and uh it's a double-edged sword too though isn't it the coverage idea hasn't been a great thing for golf in australia i can still recall in 2006 going to the australian open on the thursday Jeff Ogilvie was the reigning US Open champion. It was a bit cold on the Thursday morning. He hit off about 8 o'clock in the morning. There was only about 30 of us there. 15 years earlier, if the reigning US Open champion had been an Australian and was hitting off at 6.20 on a freezing cold morning in the Australian Open, you'd have had a 1,000 people there. Mm-hmm. Because we've been dripped, or not dripped, because we've been inundated with golf coverage, people have quite laissez-faire about, We're, oh, if Tiger's not playing, is it really a proper tournament? We've got that way here too. Uh, I, I don't, a little bit where we have tournaments. like We're much more inclined, I think, to put some of these events in regional areas now where- you're Yeah, not, I think the TPS- you actually not going to- That's right. You're not going to draw a big crowd anyway. Um, but it does bring a fair bit of commerce to those regions where they take mm-hmm. those tournaments. And you know, in the 80s, we used to host tournaments at Castle Hill. Yeah. Here, a massive Monavale. population centre. Australian PGA played at um, Monavale Golf Club. Was there not? Really? Monash. Uh, not, Monash, I think. Not Monoval, I don't think. You sure? There was one at Roseville. There was one at Rosebud. Didn't Hale Irwin play an Australian PGA? Oh, we better check this now. The Australian PGA <laughs> has one of the most diverse course hosts in history absolutely. of all time. Like, you go <laughs> back and look through, there's a period there where it's just bizarre. It's all over the place. We're- but I think, I think the PGA Tour, 
understandably were very insular for such a long time trying to build into this monopoly that they've now got. And we just ran out of weeks in the year, right? And then they've now got to shift the thing. But it's such an oversimplification to blame the PGA Tour for what's happened to the tour here. It's had a part in it, but it's not. But to, to, to Bill's point about the players coming to play these live events outside of America, it'd be interesting to do a strength of field of sorts based on world ranking when that field is you know, finalised. But it will be the best field in terms of depth of top player we've had in a long time here. You know, and mm. It'll be a fabulous exhibition. Will it do anything for <coughs> golf in Australia? Or well, golfers? I, who knows? So I mean, there's, there's a couple of different... Yeah, sort of I mean, it's, it's got sort of... People have... Uh, I've heard a lot of people sort of referencing it in the 1988 Bicentennial Classic. Now, I wasn't born, so I can't, can't oh, tell you about it. Oh, but, oh <laughs> right. <here>. Wow. <laughs> Brutal. But, I mean, the, the, the PGA Tour is getting rid of the wraparound yeah. schedule. Yeah. And, and, I, and I say good riddance. Oh, I think yeah. In high, yeah. You know, 20 years from now, we'll look back on it and say, this was that was really a... It was really, it was only a good idea in the sense of you're giving... And, and, and this to, to the PGA Tour's credit, this is their, their mission is to provide playing opportunities for their members. So, you know, if, uh, if the number 140th player on the, on the tour has a chance to make money in November, I guess, you know, that's a good thing in, in that sense. But for the overall game, it, it's been a negative, no doubt about it. Yeah. I mean, you just got to look at the response to last weekend and the Houston Open. Tony Finau wins his fourth PGA Tour event in 30 starts and, Getting some interest out of anybody was extremely hard. Um, you know, compare it where Tommy Fleetwood wins Sun City that used to be a huge event and, and it's just the oversaturation of golf and people just can't get themselves up and about to, to be that interested. I, I, I can't get myself up to be interested about these this reasonably good field that we're going to get for the live event in Adelaide because it just doesn't seem like it's going to mean anything. No, it's, I not, mean, it's not an exhibition. I think that's going too far the other way. To say to say, oh, it's an exhibition. Doesn't matter. It's an event, it, but it still doesn't feel like it means no, much. I like, mean, I, I'll be interested to try and get along and cover it in person and and see what it's like there. You know, but I, I think you're right. There's a. It's hard to sort of understand us. I think what it means because it doesn't mean anything. I mean, technically, sure, Phil's so. going to be playing, but is is his heart going to be in it? Like we just don't know. Like if he's if it was been no shortage if, of opportunities for Phil, Dustin Brooks, and the others to come and play in Australia. Yeah, so if Phil was out here playing an Australian do. Open, I would watch yeah, the hell out of, of that course. because I'd be thinking he really like he, he's going to give that a go. He might, you know, after a couple of bad rounds, he might. It's an important it, national title, Bill. Is this the punch in the face the PGA Tour has deserved for some time? And will they wake up and uh, fix their fix their? Uh, what am I talking well, about? you know, I, I'm not a, I'm not personally a fan of the the live the live uh, golf, but uh, I do think the PGA Tour was vulnerable to some type of of hostile takeover is the wrong word, but yeah, they were they were they were setting themselves up to be, um, uh, I don't know, attacked. Uh, they got a little they got a little arrogant, I would say, over the years. Uh, I mean. The PGA Tour does a lot of, they, it does a lot of good in the sense of the individual tournaments that comprise the PGA Tour raise a lot of money for charities. And it, and that's a legitimate thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the tour at large is not doing it. It's the individual tournaments, but they comprise the tour. So in that sense, the tour does do a lot of good beyond just, uh, having entertaining, uh, events, uh, uh, for, for, uh, you know, for TV and otherwise. But, um, you know, Jimmy made the point you can't blame the PGA Tour uh, for everything in terms of events not coming to Australia. And I think that's true. I think, uh, you, you know, the PGA Tour can be an easy punching bag for people outside of the U.S. who who have seen it as the villain. Um, I think the truth is probably somewhere in the, in the middle. And in fairness, the PGA Tour did, in fact, bring uh, several secondary tour events to Australia for a number of years, including I, I, playing in Adelaide, the Jacobs Creek Open on what was then, okay. I think, the Nationwide Tour. Nationwide. Was it web.com? Mm-hmm. Including the man we're going to go play golf with, Winnie Moore, the Classic who, on the Nationwide Tour. Classic, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, the, I think, look, I think we will, it won't be very long before there is Corn Ferry Tour event or events in Australia again. Mm. I mean, that that's something I've heard rumoured for pre-live sort of stuff um, as they try and work through what the partnership with DP World and, by extension, the PGA Tour here looks like. Um, so I think we'll end up that way again. And, look, 
it makes sense that the PGA Tour isn't going to ship a full-on, full-scale PGA Tour event down here unless they've got a bit of a run and all that sort of stuff. Well, but uh, it would be really good to see that or PGA and Europe and DP World working together at that. But I'd be much more drawn to a Corn Ferry event tour because, you know, everyone's playing their heart out at one of those. But isn't really, part of the problem really there, and this was the problem with those secondary tour events when they were here, and Bill might speak to this. You mentioned it before, Bill. The 140th player on the money list, you know, wants his playing opportunity and the PGA Tour's job is to provide it. Is the problem that the 140th player, not specifically, I don't know who's 140th on the list at the moment, is driving those decisions? Isn't that part of the problem? And the whole point of Liv is there's only 48 and they're the best 48. This is the idea of Liv is. is no longer are we beholden to the quote-unquote second-rate or second-tier players on the tour to set what the tour does. Well, I mean, that, that speaks to, to a, a real, uh, you know, question about professional golf uh, for, forever once, once it became a, a viable entity. And it's only gotten um, uh, a bigger question in the years when the, the money's gotten bigger and where people – uh, who aren't in the top 60 on the U.S. tour money list can, can make a living. Um, you know, when the all exempt tour on the PGA tour came into being in the early eighties, that was a nod to make life easier and better for the rank and file. There's no question about it. When you took away the Monday, the week to week Monday qualifying where, uh, you know, a, a big chunk of the field earned their way into the field each week. Um, you know, that changed. Did, did that create uh, complacency? Well, if you're asking those players who are, uh, you know, going city to city trying to qualify each Monday, it, 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 it didn't it, it didn't create complacency. It, it created a little sanity because you, you had you knew you could create a schedule uh, and not have to uh, roll the dice on 18 holes on a Monday. But. You know, there, there's a there's a there's a wave of coverage now on on, on so outlets, the Fire Pit Collective in particular, where they're kind of coming at it. Hey, there's the the tour's not doing enough for the underclass for the fledgling players. So you know, people are saying that the you know the tour's not doing enough to develop to develop the next wave of of players. Uh, I don't know that I totally agree with that either. Uh, I mean, the fact is. Spectators out there, casual fans in particular, they're they're really not interested in that 140th player. That that they might they might stumble upon him or her at a tournament and, and enjoy watching him or her if it's a, a women's event. But they're going to be drawn to the tournament by the stars, and that's that's always been the case, and I think it will always be the case. Well, uh, William- how a professional organization balances all that. Um, you know, you got to be smarter than me to really figure out the ideal way, I think. W- William McGirt is 140th at the moment. <laughs> Sorry, William. Good, good fact. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I, I think Nobody wants to see William McGirt. I think the, it's interesting that, you know, we talk about the interesting stories are those people who are on the fringes maybe, but people- Partly. People often only pay attention to them once they've gone through the ascendancy. I mean, Steve Alker is a great example. Steve Alker played on the PJ Tour of Australasia, on the PJ Tour at brief points, and mainly Corn Ferry Nationwide, Web.com, whatever its name was. And he still made $2 million before he turned 50. I mean, it's not compare it to other guys. He's paying his bills. Except, but he's paying his bills. Yeah. He's, he's, he's doing the bill field it, in 1981. Like a big shot. He's, he just spent a fair <laughs> chunk of that along the way. Just oh, of course he would have. And he's not living like a millionaire. No. But people now love his story. Now he's having this outrageous success after Monday qualifying into a Champions Tour event and then now winning and all this sort of stuff. But people before that, on the whole, as a, as a wider sort of you know, audience to it, weren't that interested they've waited until he's already up there. So the the sort of the the middle of the road PJ tour player is interesting to people once they break out of that well, to got, me. They've all got the potential to be that, don't they? That's kind of part of it. Yeah, well that's right. And and anyone who you know, I got a friend who played provincial golf in New Zealand around the t- same time as Steve Alker and talk about how good he is. So that's that's again that sort of thing mm. of these people who are hundred and forty. Well, Rod and I remember when Steve Alker was an up and coming Young, I remember young writing about Steve Alka at the Cannon <laughs> Challenge at Castle Hill, which Peter Senior just used to win every year. They should have just cancelled the tournament and given him the trophy because uh, he had a lock on the place. Bill, is the fundamental change that's going to come from this whole live golf thing, Paul McGinley alluded to this in a thing about golf podcast on the Golf Australia 
magazine. It's going to go from what it's always been, which is this kind of, in some ways, disorganised uh, way of identifying talent, to a league, a paid league like other sports. We've already seen it. The PGA Tour are giving players on the PGA Tour, I think it's $500,000 to cover expenses to start the year. That comes out of their, goes against their earnings until they've reached that that sort of money. But so they can do what you're talking about, map out a schedule. It doesn't have to be this hand-to-mouth scrabble existence if you kind of get there but you don't have a lot of resources. And will that change be a good thing where it becomes more like football or baseball or basketball or uh, AFL here in Australia where you get paid up front for your talents and then you go out and perform on a weekly basis? Uh, I think it'll in golf. It's it'll always. This is obviously a new a new thing. I mean, aside, you know, appearance money notwithstanding, that's always been around the game under the under the table in in many cases. But yeah, I think it's. I don't think it's ever going to be. Hey, you 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 know, every player on the tour is going to get this amount of money. I think it's, it's going to be an you know augmented type thing. Um, uh, is, is that a, a change that should happening? Well, if you if you you know, uh, if you're a player that's qualified for the tour. And you know, you're getting 500 grand. My goodness. I mean, if you come from modest circumstances, that has to be, you know, a life changing, um, a huge thing. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, it, it makes sense if the tour has the money to, to, to dole it out. Um, the, is it going to change the competitive, uh, fervor and mindset? I don't really, I don't think so. I think that players are still going to play hard. You're still going to, you're, you're a competitor. You're going to win, want to win titles, not, not necessarily bank cash. Um, you know, it, things have changed. We talked about how quickly the media landscape changed. Well, the competitive pro golf uh, landscape has changed drastically in the last uh, year or so, hasn't it? And, and we can, and we can say that live golf's emergence uh, had a lot to do with it. Oh, no question. Harrison Endicott, I talked to just after he'd made his first PGA Tour start, and it was so funny listening to him talk about having played PGA Tour Latino America and, and the Corn Ferry and in Australia. And he says, you know, he has a, f- a really good week. I think he finished tied 12th, his first event as a PGA Tour member. And he said, it, it's kind of bizarre because normally you play an event, you get a text message saying how much money you earn, and then it's in your bank account. You go and open your bank account because there's a story about Jason Day playing his first PJ Tour event and going to an ATM, that's how long ago it was, and checking the balance to look at how much money was in his bank. And and Harrow said, well, it's kind of bizarre. You get this text saying you finished T12, which is equal to, let's say, 100000 US dollars. But I've actually, he goes, I've actually already got that money, so I kind of- deduct that money from myself. Right. So he goes, it kind of does your head a little bit funny mm-hmm. that I've done so well, but I've you've lost from, money. You've and- gone from five hundred <laughs> to four hundred thousand dollars. There is a um economists will look at this because like there's that concept of universal basic income, which is communism. <laughs> well, it's socialist. I think it's more socialist. Right. But anyway. Uh the um where participation econ- for all economists will say though that it has the opposite effect of communism, which tends to uh, stifle creativity. Universal basic income. It gives people the security to be risk takers and do bold things that they might not otherwise have done because it's not that much that you're going to start like living large off your universal basic income. Um, and I think there's the potential for the sim- for a similar sort of thing in the PGA Tour where players might get a bit more creative Great. with their like you know, for all well, it just changed the personality type that succeeds. Well, for all of his buffoonery, like Bryson DeChambeau is extremely creative and mm. tries a bunch of different things, and you know he's a, he's, he's a, interesting. He's interesting. Um, and if there was this sort of freedom to not be worrying about, like I, you know, I, I can't pay my mortgage if I don't hold this ten foot putt, is. You know, that, that I think that's going to be freeing and might result in better golf. Yeah, it's some, yeah. some difference of golf. Last yeah. one from me. Great point. Great point, Adrian. Yeah. Uh, oh, thank you, Bill. And, and, thank and, you. and valid. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh-huh. Adrian's just sipping his Chardonnay here because he's, he's an inner city woke lefty having his, uh, having his chilled Chardonnay. Last one from me, Bill. I was listening to a podcast, Firm and Fast, by Shane Darby, our Irish friend. Really interesting piece. Not for everybody. It's fairly niche. A really interesting interview with a professor in Ireland about the history of golf in Ireland and its roots. Towards the end, this professor made the point that those sports and industries who take their position for granted need to be careful. You only need to look at the Colosseum. It's not guaranteed. Oh, I listened to this one. It's very good. That idea has intrigued me since I heard it. We all work on the premise, don't we, Bill, 
that it's just guaranteed there will always be a PGA Tour or professional golf or indeed golf itself. This goes right to the very heart of the game. That's possibly in some ways what happened to the PGA Tour. There's no question it was too big for its boots by the time Liv came along. Uh, there's a real danger of that, isn't there? We need to keep in mind that none of this is guaranteed to continue. Well, was it Dan Jenkins that said, uh, you know, uh, there's nothing that'll cure things quicker than a, a de- Great Depression, another Great Depression. I mean, and, you know, I mean, you, I, I was looking at uh, one of the golfers yesterday, one, I think it was Nelly Corda, and uh, just the, the number of logos that she had on her clothing. It was incredible. I mean, you know, and she's obviously getting money from all those. And clearly the companies that are paying her, see a value in giving her that money or they wouldn't be doling it out. Mm. But, you know, at what, you know, they have to perceive that they're getting some, some value from spending that money. And that's, you know, every, every sponsor that puts dollars down for a tour event, whether it's in the U S or Australia or in Europe or in Asia. Um, yeah, but at, at some point, um, if they don't think the money's worthwhile, you know, it, it's going to go away. And I think that's why people, uh, there's a cadre of people in the game who, who, you know, who crave, who, who constantly, uh, uh, uh lobby for more, uh, interesting of type events in golf, a uh, mix, whether it's mixed gender or it's, uh, more match play or, uh, whatever it might be. I think, I think, uh, people think that, you know, having events like that or, you know, have, have pros play with, uh, clubs from 1930 or have club, have pros play with, uh, three or four clubs. You know, and just th- things that would uh, spice up the calendar. I, I would. I wish the tour would embrace that type of thinking a little bit more. A retro, a retro equipment day, maybe. There's a lot of us who'd love to do that. Interestingly, just going back to mentions of live, the Adelaide event will go up against the Zurich Classic, so the PGA Tour's attempt at teams golf. Oh, lame attempt! Exactly, stretch to call it an exactly. attempt. Exactly. So that's so so true. Like it's just it's teams a, doesn't it's equal so, interesting. That's um, gonna, it, that, the team format is so important. That's going to just showcase a bit of to me everything that we get wrong in golf is yeah. going to be like. Here's one thing where there's a lot of people with questions about the financing and they're trying to do a team thing one way, and then here's the other thing where they've got a lot of money too, and they're going to do a team thing that's not really a team thing, and. What do you think? And everyone sits there, oh, geez, this. Well, the time difference will allow us to watch both, Jimmy, which will be fantastic for us here. Well, and and uh, the DP World Tour will be in Japan, so they'll sort of fit into the middle of that too. So it's wall-to-wall golf. Yeah, yeah, we don't need to sleep at all <laughs> that week. Uh, Bill, I know I said the last one, but I was just thinking when you were talking then, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, I heard a story in the early 2000s about Golf Digest US in the 90s. It was held up as the model for magazines, not golf magazines, magazines broadly. There was a waiting list for full-page ads in US Golf Digest at various times during that, and they were $100,000 each. And so if one advertiser decided they didn't like a story in the previous month's magazine, they could say, well, we're pulling our ad next month, and the people at Golf Digest say, that's fine. We've got four other people who want it. That can change really quickly, can't it? <laughs> that's unquestionably um, no longer the case for any if, golf if, magazine. If, if you go in a library that has the bound volumes of Golf Digest from that period, late 80s into the early yeah. 90s, those bound volumes are very thick because yep. it, they were minting money. Yep. I mean, it was it was it was the heyday for for Golf Digest. Yep. And uh, you're right; um, those days uh, went away because of the way society changed, the way technology changed, and uh, things can change very quickly. Yeah, indeed, including people going and subscribing to your Substack mm-hmm. and paying very quickly, Bill. That's what we recommend. We'll find a link in the show notes. Find a link in the show notes yep. uh, to uh, to Bill's Substack. Bill, it's been fantastic of you to give us some time today, mate. We really appreciate. it. We're going to get you back again for sure. I know it's a pain to do, but we 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 love having you on the show. So thanks for taking some time today, mate. Uh, it's a pleasure. Really enjoy talking with you, folks. Jimmy, good to have you aboard. Enjoy your golf today. How many courses? Three, three, three nine-hole courses. Three nine-hole courses. Little stops at some cafes and pubs on the way. Acceleration. Well. Fantastic. I've got Logue as my chauffeur, so I <laughs> plan on being extremely inappropriate by the time I get back in after the third course. Thank you for your time today. And, Logue, enjoy your two forms of driving today, driving Jimmy and driving the golf. Is it retro equipment? It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah, I've got my Australian blades and I've got this ping, one of those laminated ping. Oh, don't talk clates. Yeah, not a proper Clay, persimmon. Not, but And Clay's not a fan of ping woods. Well, ping woods in those days were awful. Yeah, ping set. Like, mine make mine works woods. really well. Yeah. I, I, it's the one persimmon wood. I, well, well it's it, not persimmon, they, but it's the one 
wood for Matty Rhythm. I can heavy, still hit. Big, heavy shaping towards the toe in the laminate ones, so yeah. they flip over. Yeah. So you, you know, if, you, if you've got the blocks like Logue gets under pressure, <laughs> it helps hook it back into <laughs> place. I help so his putting, though. Bill, what's the best persimmon, mate? You, you would know. Well, it's was. funny you say that. I've, I've been mostly playing uh, all my golf with uh, persimmons and blades for the last 18 months and really enjoying it. Mm. Um, I, I don't know. It kind of got me uh, uh, energized to play again. What and, driver uh, are you using, mate? All the retro people. I'm using right now a uh, SS1W, I think it is, McGregor, from like ni- around the year I was born, 1959. And, uh, oh, nice. I've got the other day I had a very nice round with it, but uh, we'll see what happens tomorrow. <laughs> picture, picture and story on your sub stack will go a long way to attracting a bunch of people. There's quite the movement of retro people out there, Bill. So do you- I've got a McGregor Iomatic driver that belonged to Ted Sterling that was used to win about 100 pro. I am around Australia. Nice. That's what I'm going to use today. I've also got my retro watch, the, Cas- <laughs> Did you the Casio GPS? F91W. No GPS on there to tell you how far they're going? No. That's episode Literally 123 like a watch, of the Good Good Golf Podcast. We'll see you next week.